Heavenly Father, you are the greatest reality in existence. This is fact, objective truth. That's who you are. And um, the greatest need right now for us, all of us, every single person in here, is for us to see and feel that fact. And today we're getting into a part of Colossians that looks at a dimension of who you are that is deep and heavy and challenging and difficult to the human mind and the human heart. And so I pray right now for an extraordinary exertion of grace, not only on every individual listener, Father, but on your weak servant, that I would speak clearly and biblically and that we would all have, myself included, hearts that desire to hear from you and to see you rightly and to enjoy you in the fullest possible way. So I pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Sorry, I'm messing up things. All right. Don't give me near sound stuff. It'll screw up. So we've been in Colossians for one, uh, we've been in Colossians for the last two weeks in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which is referred to as the Christ hymn. And it's believed to be a hymn because either um, it was a part, a hymn or liturgy that was adopted by Paul for the purposes of this letter, or it was probably more likely a hymn that came out of Paul's arrangement here. Either way, it's referred to as the Christ hymn. And what we've been doing the last two weeks is something a little bit different. Normally, I read the passage and then um, try to exposit it or explain it. But we've been reading it together, and I'd like to do that, if you guys are willing, this week again. The goal of liturgy, which is collectively reading um, a text that glorifies God, is that we would worship together. It's that um, as we read these words, we do every single thing in our might to see them and feel them the way they ought to be, to feel the gravity of them. And my prayer for every one of us, myself included, is that God presses that gravity into the weightiness of his glory into our souls. And so we're going to put Colossians 1, 15 through 20 here, and I'll start us off, and you just read along with me. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be created. For in him falls the list of God to his love, and through him to reconcile to himself. It was awesome hearing you guys say that correctly and me mess up on stuff. Um, <laughs> um, so the first week in the Christ hymn, 
we looked at the divinity of the Son of God. And what that means is that Christ Jesus is eternal. He is before all things, or as in Colossians, or as Colossians 1.18 says, he is the beginning. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus Christ is the source of all things. Verse 16 says that all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists in the universe, everything that exists in the universe has one source, and that source has a name, Jesus Christ. And this week we are pressing deeper into the Christ hymn, and we're going to focus on one very specific phrase that I hope will open up a new room in this massive mansion of glories that represent Jesus Christ. And this week we're going to be looking at how Jesus is the foundation of all things. Now, that means that he's not just the source, but he is the sustaining power that holds all things together. He is the glue that makes reality real. Colossians 1.17 says this, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that may seem simple and short on the surface. It means that, obviously we've talked about this before, he is before all things. Christ bears the marks of divinity, meaning he is eternal. But then it says, in him all things hold together. Now why would Paul say that? And why would he connect it to this initial phrase, he is before all things? What is he trying to get at? It's more than mere eternality that he's describing here. What he's referring to here is more than mere universe-shaping power, if you can put mere in front of that phrase. What he's referring to here, what's being engaged here philosophically, is something called absolute reality or ultimate reality. Now, what is that? (laughs) Philosophically, absolute reality is the only uncreated thing in existence. It is literally the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, which is why Paul takes care to preface the fact that Christ holds all things together by saying that he is before everything. He's not just the source of all things, but he is the sustaining power holding all things together. Now, what's included in everything? What's included in all things? This universe that we live in and all of its unending massiveness, every single subatomic particle and collection of matter, including me, including all of you, including the 7.6 billion human beings that occupy this planet, All of us, every single thing is held together by Christ Jesus. And according to this concept of ultimate reality, everything else, because it is held together by Christ, is referred to as contingent. What does that mean? It means that what Paul is saying here is that everything that you see in reality is sustained and Christ is the sustainer. 
everything that you see, including us, are derivatives, and he is the one from whom we are derived. We are all shadows, and he is the substance. We are echoes, and he is the original voice. That's what it means to be before all things. Paul is saying quite clearly in this passage that Jesus Christ is ultimate reality and everything else that exists, every single thing that you can think of is infinitely more temporary. Now, this phrase here, in him all things to hold together, is interesting. The Greek for this word, which is sunistaho, it, the specific variant that's used here isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only used in Colossians 1.17 this way. And most translations say either hold together or they'll use the word cohere. But the author of Hebrews does something very, says something very similar, and it gives us a little bit more exposition for this. The author of Hebrews says, he, that is Christ, upholds the universe by the word of his power. What he's saying there is this, that Jesus Christ undergirds and supports all of created reality. He didn't just exist before it came into existence. He didn't just create it, but every single millisecond exists because, and get this, he decides that it should exist. That's why it exists. That's the kind of God that Paul's expressing in Colossians 1.18. Christianity isn't a deist religion. Christianity doesn't adhere to the idea that God sort of created everything and then stepped back like an absentee uh, landlord or watchmaker. That's not the God of this Bible. Christianity is that all of reality is held together every single moment by the mere pleasure of the living God. But this didn't just arise from the New Testament. This concept of absolute reality is something that's been woven into human, um, human beings since the very beginning. In fact, Greek philosophers, just prior to um, the arrival of Christ, were grappling with the concept of absolute reality. And they didn't have a name for what it would be, but they knew, they knew, they were confident that there was something underneath all things that was holding it together. And in Acts 17, it's very interesting. We get a picture of what this was for them. During one of his missionary journeys, Paul waltzes into the great city of Athens, and he begins to engage philosophers at the Areopagus, which is also called Mars Hill. And I want you to listen to what he says. Listen to how he engages them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is an amazing encounter. Paul uses an unnamed, unknown deity as his means by which to directly import the gospel of Jesus Christ into a culture that has no clue what that is. Their altar says, to the unknown God. And Paul just runs with it. He knows the God they don't know. He knows this God. This God is actually the one true God, and they don't know him at all, as they admit. So who is this God, Paul says? He says, well, this God made heaven and earth and everything that's in it. And he's not only a maker of heaven and earth, he's Lord over it all. So he's not served by human hands. And if he had a 21st century vocabulary, Paul might have (laughs) continued further and said something to the effect of, this God isn't served by human hands because he made your hands and he made your very ability to serve. He made the neurons that are firing in your brain right now, triggering any desire that you have to serve. All of that down to the barest atomic particle was made and is sustained by this God, the unknown God. Which is why Paul says he gives to man life and breath and everything. Everything is a lot, Paul. Are you sure you don't want to limit that? Is there something that God doesn't give us? Paul doesn't limit it. I believe him when he says everything. He actually means every single thing. And to press that further, he says, this God has determined allotted periods and boundaries of your dwelling place. So who determines where we live? Do we? Paul says, God determines our allotted times and periods and seasons, and he determines our dwelling places. It isn't something man dictates to God. It is something that man does out of inclinations that are God-given and determined already. We have a pillar at Risen Hope, which is love where you live. And this is a critical pillar for me. Um, It means this. We are called as believers to love the people God has sovereignly placed near us, in our neighborhood, on our street, in our workplaces. You are not there by accident. You're not there by accident, and you're not ultimately there because you decided to be there, even though that may be the means. You are ultimately there because God decided in his sovereignty to put you there. And therefore, if you just consider it for a second, how profound that is, there is a reason for you to be where you are right now. There's a reason, and I can make a guarantee about that reason. It has something to do with the glory of God, for sure. Back to Acts 17. Paul expresses God's desire for all humanity to seek and to find him. That's a sermon in and of itself. Um, But what he's focusing on here is this. God is not far from us. 
He's not far from us. Now, what does he mean by this? He is brilliant because what he could do is he could give them a Hebrew answer. He could give them an answer that is Hebrew in its uh, mentality and thinking, but he doesn't do that because they wouldn't understand that. He could give them a blend of Judaism and Greek, which he would be familiar with because he grew up in that context, but he doesn't think in that term either. Instead, what he does is he goes directly where they are. He goes to their own people, their own philosophers, and he lets them know that this God, this unknown God, has not left them without a witness. There's a witness. They know this God. Maybe not fully, but they know him. They've unconsciously been talking about this God for centuries. He quotes Epimenides, and Epimenides is a Greek philosopher from the island of Crete, and he's purported to say, have said, in him, in this unknown God, we live and move and have our being. And Paul connects the unknown God to this quote. In who is Paul's question? In who do we live and move and have our being? Whoever that is, it must be ultimate and absolute reality, which is Paul's point. Paul is saying that this quote is their unknown God. Our existence from first breath to final breath is his. He sustains it. Our movements from the first time we kick the inside of our mother's womb to the last time our chest rises before we exhale one last time. All of those, we have our being in this God. And what this means is that our composition, our molecular coherency, indeed the entire universe's coherency, is not an intrinsic ability of the universe. It is not just something the universe does. Rather, it is an expression of God. It is an expression of the one true God. And according to Colossians and Hebrews, that one is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Last week, week we read a a letter, uh, we read a passage from the letter to Romans. And um, it goes like this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. This is of God. Everything comes from God and everything returns to God. And all of it exists through him, through his power and through his greatness. He holds it all together. And we are alive right now, this very second, because he's decided for it to be. That's what it means for him to be the foundation of all things. Now, this is where we take a little bit of a left turn and this part will press you. It will press me a little bit, but we need to go here because it's the next logical step. So hang on. If this is true, if he is absolute reality and we are secondary contingent upon his will, which we are according to scripture, then it must mean that all things happen according to the purpose of his will. That all of history and everything that has ever taken place in reality only takes place because he either allows it or he causes it to happen directly. Psalm 115.3 says this, 
our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So who is in the heavens? Our God, the psalmist says. This God that Paul is talking about in Colossians. And he does all that he pleases. If it doesn't please him, he doesn't do it. If it does please him, he does it. This means that God is, the theological term for this, sovereign. Nothing happens except through him or by his will. That's from the New City Catechism. I'm trying to teach my kids. Um, they would tell you a lot clearer than I did just there, but that nothing happens except through God and, or by his will. Nothing. This isn't an isolated concept either. If we look at Colossians uh, 1.35, 5 through 6, listen to this. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever this God pleases, the psalmist says, he does. Nothing in reality happens without his permission. And all of it happens according to the purpose of his will. He is the foundation of everything, and in him all things hold together. This is heavy if you've thought through the logical ramifications of what I've been saying and what the psalmists have been saying. Because there are a lot of things that happen in this world that are bad and that are horrible and reprehensible. Does God hold those things together? Tsunamis. Hurricanes. Does he hold cancer cells together? Because my grandfather died of cancer, did he hold the cells together that killed him? Hannah of the Old Testament helps me answer that question. After being barren for years and being the subject of ridicule, God answers finally her incessant prayers and she's pregnant with Samuel. And she says a song of praise, a prayer really, to God in 1 Samuel 2. And we see her assess God's hand in the affairs of men. Listen to what she says. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why? Hannah says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What does she mean by this? She means that God is completely, totally sovereign over all things. And her basis for that, her argument for that in this prayer is that the pillars of the earth, the foundation of the cosmos is his. No one has a right over it but him. Nothing happens except by his hand. And he owns it all. He governs it all sovereignly. And so my immediate question to Hannah would be, well, what about, what about disabilities? What about suffering? 
What about things that people didn't control? They just were born with. How do we answer that? Exodus 4 helps us answer that. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. Now, in this part of Scripture, he is engaging God because God has told him, you're going to my people, you're going to tell them, tell Pharaoh, he's going to let them go. And Moses is like, I actually have a list of things that we need to go through before we get to that part. And one of them is, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to them, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing? or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. God is not interested in hearing Moses' complaint here, because the subject of Moses' complaint is God's own creation. He made Moses' speech impediment. In fact, it's probably his design so that there's no way anyone thinks at the end of the day that Moses was ultimately the one that delivered the people. God did it himself. Now, there are two ways when we see these things in Scripture, there's two ways that we can respond. There's two default actions that we can have. We can either try to rationalize it, this is one way, and we can try to figure him out. And we can try to get our philosophies, you know, we grab free will, we grab human responsibility, we take a look at the problem of evil and pain, and we try to come up with an equation that makes all of this work. That's one way you can respond to this. The other way is you just worship him. You straight up say, somehow it makes sense and works out. Those are the only two ways you can respond to God's sovereignty. And if I'm honest with you, the inclination I have always is to try to, I want answers, to try to rationalize it. I, I want an explanation. We need God, I need God to fit in my box so I can understand and comprehend him. But the problem with this is that he doesn't fit in my box. The Bible doesn't let him fit in my box. For example, scripture says on one hand that God is completely perfect and good, that there is no darkness in him. That's true. On the other hand, it says we are all personally responsible for every single thing we do. We have human responsibility and obligation to do morally upright things and to love God. God is perfectly good and we are fully responsible, yet somehow nothing happens except by his will. Ephesians 1.11 says this, God works all things according to the purpose or according to the counsel of his will. All things. Which I only can take from that, that every single thing, every single thing is worked according to the counsel of his will. Nothing happens outside of it. Yet somehow he is still perfectly good and holy in every way. He never tempts man to sin. And we are still morally responsible. And we are morally responsible at an infinite level, because everything we do has infinite consequences if this book is, is right and true. So how do we begin 
to even interact with and engage with this kind of reality about God. Before we answer that question, into scripture, um, I just want to make sure we understand the framework here. If he upholds the universe by his power, then, this is how my mind thinks, every atom remains an atom because he decides for it to remain an atom. That's his decision. And those atoms compose things in this world, like human beings, like machine guns, like bombs, like hurricanes and earthquakes. These are all physical realities, and they're all held together by Christ Jesus. And from those physical realities, we get something called human history. We get World War II and the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide, and we get famine and starvation and plague that are happening right now, this second, at certain parts, in certain parts of the world. All of those things, every tragedy you can think of, all of this, based on Ephesians 1.11, is somehow being worked according to the purpose of God's will. Now, my response to this for years was no way. There's no way. Either God is evil or that verse isn't true. And I believe that God was evil for 10 years. There's no way that any good, any good can be in God if those verses are true. And this is the road that I think a lot of people end up going down because they don't, they don't argue mainly from a place of reason or science. They're arguing from a legitimate emotional response and they're incorrectly putting God on trial for the state of the world. They would say something to the effect of, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't he do something about human suffering? Especially people who don't seem to deserve what they're getting. But the question that they fail to ask, I believe, is that if God is all-powerful, he must also be all-wise. Why am I even questioning his decisions? Are they, is, the, is the presumption in my mind that he's all-powerful, but he's not quite as intelligent as I am? It's a logical fallacy. If he's really God, then in addition to being all-powerful, he must be all-wise. He made all things. So consider this. If God's truly sovereign and in control of all things— that means this profound fact. Even the most painful in events in human history are somehow not outside of his plan. They are, in fact, part of his plan. Now, the reason we have a tendency to resist that notion is because we desire for human suffering to be brought to an end. This is a God-given desire. But in our desire, in our concern to end human suffering, which again is part of God's DNA in us because we are made in his image, it is wrong to elevate that above God's plan and purposes. When we try to tell God how to do his job, we are taking his place. And our default in this world is to think that any pain, any 
Suffering in this world is senseless and purposeless and therefore must be godless. But the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that God isn't just sovereign over the world and over pain and over suffering, but God, the God of this book, the God of the Bible, entered into our world in the man Jesus Christ. And he took hold of the pain and the suffering of this world and he embraced it fully. And that was part of the plan. Listen to Peter in Acts 2. Men of Israel, he's explaining what happened to Jesus. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why explain the crucifixion like this? Peter, in his sermon, this is his first sermon, accuses everybody in his audience, all of Israel, of killing Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. You killed him. It's your fault he's dead. And it was done by the hands of lawless men. It was done against the law. It was done by Roman ex executors who were acting against the law. He was innocent and you killed him. You crucified him. It was your doing that he was humiliated and put it on that tree. And if you think about it, this is the son of the living God. Innocent, blameless, perfect. There is no crime worse than this in the universe. There's no sin worse than this. This is the apex of sinning. I don't know what kind of sin you've committed. I've done a lot of horrific stuff in my life. Nothing comes close to this. Killing the Son of God is the highest and greatest of all sins. Yet, Peter says in this verse that Jesus was delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The darkest event in human history was God's plan, God's definite, unchangeable plan for his son to be murdered. Acts 4, 27 through 28 actually helps us a little bit more. The early church is praying to their God. They address him, sovereign Lord, and then they say this. Truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, he's talking to, they're talking to God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand had planned, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So think about this for a second. The stage is set. We have Herod. We have Pontius Pilate. We have Gentiles corroborating with Jews, and all of them want to kill him, Jesus. This isn't an accident. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't a slip-up. This is premeditated murder, and it is, it is thoroughly premeditated in the case of some of these. They're guilty of this. The early church, in their prayers, making it clear they are guilty. They gather together and they crucify Jesus, but the prayer says that this was to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. What is that sentence saying? 
that the greatest crime in history was determined in advance by God? That not only the greatest crime, but think about this, this is greatest suffering that's ever been endured by any human being. Not a single soul has ever or will ever experience this. Though this man never sinned once, never had a bad affection or idea, he bore the full weight of God's wrath and judgment for sinners like me and you for a lifetime of God dishonoring. No one had ever suffered like this. And yet God determined and planned for this to happen. Now, what does this tell you? It should tell us very clearly that if anyone has an issue with a sovereign God in a world like ours, a world filled with pain and suffering, it should be cleared up very quickly by the fact that this God entered into the middle of the suffering and took it all on himself. He isn't far away and watching us suffer. He's not just observing us from a distance. He is in the middle of it all, embracing the suffering with us. And there's a massive reason for that. So why did God do this? Why did he do this? Why, why build a world like this that would have a fall, that would have suffering, that would have a cross? Paul explains in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, he's talking about all of reality that was created, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is saying in this passage that creation was subjected unwillingly to futility. And this futility is the source of every single ounce of pain and suffering in this world. That's the connection he's drawing in the passage between suffering and futility. And he says that it was done in hope. And the implication here is that it is God who did this. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you'll see when it happened. God did this in response to the spurning of his own glory. Male, man's refusal to delight in God as he ought to. In fact, as he was made to do and yet refused. So God's response to that is very clear in Genesis 3. Takes the universe up in his hands that he made, that he delights in, and he breaks it to paint a picture of how spiritually and morally horrific it is to turn away from the life-giving, joy-creating God of the universe. To show how much of a tragedy that is. And yet, if you're like me, you do things to perpetuate this issue every single day. 
That's what it means to subject the world to futility. The universe didn't do this. God did this in response to man's sin. Now, what does Paul say was the purpose ultimately for doing this? It wasn't just a reaction to what man did. God knew what was going to happen. He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. He knew the fall was going to take place. He wasn't clueless. He didn't just figure out some solution after he saw it go sideways. He knew it. Why build a world where that happens? All of this happened, according to Scripture, so that Christ would enter the suffering and enter the brokenness of this universe and embrace it so completely that he would share in its brokenness. He would share in its destruction. And indeed, the cross crushed him under the weight of all of our sin, all of our rebellion, and the just judgment of God, he was crushed. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It was the will of the Father to crush him. This was the plan from the beginning. Our sin had separated us from God, and Christ's powerful act of righteousness removes the separation because he goes down deep at the bottom of our sin and pain and rescues us from it. But what is Paul saying here? There's something hopeful about the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what this whole purpose is surrounding. It's, there, it's all going to a point in human history when there will be freedom and hope. What is that point? Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. What Paul is saying there is that the most painful and tragic suffering in this life, and everyone here has felt it. Everyone here has felt it. The most tragic suffering in this life, and indeed in all of human history, are a mere breath compared to the infinite glories that await those who love God. A mere breath, a split second, a drop in the bucket. That is incomparable glory, incomparable joy. There is nothing like this in the world. And for those who love and trust in Jesus Christ, their future is certain. Their future is guaranteed. Romans 8:28 says, "We know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." There is not a more encouraging verse in the Bible that directly engages God's sovereignty than this one, in my opinion. For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him. That's massive. All things. It includes, it must include the worst possible things that have happened to me and happened to you. Those are included in the all things. And this passage promises that they will work for our good somehow. Somehow they will work for our good. And in a world like ours, let me just be honest with you, we need this promise. Christians need this promise. We need to believe it. We need to bank our lives on it every single day of our lives. When we get that call, 
from someone you didn't expect you were going to get a call from today saying that somebody isn't with us anymore. Or when you go into the doctor's office and they say, we need to talk. You need this promise. All things work together for the good of those who love God. This sovereign God works all parts of reality, even the darkest, for our good and for his glory. As we worship in the next few minutes, we'll be taking communion. And if that's you, if you are a lover of God, you are invited to participate in communion. The act of communion is a, is a memorialization and a proclamation. It's both of these things. It's a memorialization and a proclamation because it embraces and celebrates the worst day of human history and the best day of human history. A day that we will be singing about, according to the book of Revelation, for ages unending. That's the cross of Christ. And that's what's represented by the elements. So as you take them, my prayer for you is for you to praise and worship God, the foundation of all things for his work in and through the cross and praise him for his sovereign power, which will take the worst possible thing that's ever happened to you and weave it into his story for you, for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Lord, the weightiness of the reality of your sovereignty in a world like ours is so difficult for us to comprehend. And that's probably by design. It forces us into the uncomfortable spot of saying, I don't know the answer, but I know that you have me because I love you. I pray that we would do our best, Father, that you would give us the, the ability and the strength to embrace you, not from a position of trying to rationalize reality in correspondence to you, but Father, that we would just embrace you as the Father you are, loving his children, even in the lowest of valleys, picking us up, embracing us. And you... We know this is true. We know this is true because in the center of human history, you broke into our world and you redeemed us from the curse and the penalty of all of our God-dishonoring actions. Everything we say, think, and do that doesn't make you look as beautiful as you are. You saved us from those things and you did it by embracing the worst possible suffering imaginable. You are with us. So I pray that we would know that. I pray that we would embrace it and feel it, Father, and that it would form our lives, that it would, that it would tell us how to live, how to act, how to operate in a world filled with tragedy. We'd do everything we can to end human suffering, but we'd also know that God has a plan. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. We give you all the glory, Father, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.